Well, good afternoon and welcome to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is broadcast number 102. This is January 28th, 2016. And today is our normal monthly uh, segment where Dr. Piper comes in and um, comes into the studio and he uh, answers questions from the listeners, those who are faithful listeners to this program, are well aware of how we do things on this particular segment. Uh, the listeners write in, Dr. Piper takes those questions, filters through them, reviews them, researches them as needed, and then responds to them on the air. And, and, and it usually generates some really good discussion. If you're new to the broadcast and have never written in, I would encourage you to do so. It's Confessing Our Hope at GPTS. Edu. You can also submit questions through our website at confessingourhope.com. So that is the way to reach out to us, and then we will respond, as it were, to you through this particular program. Let me quickly, before we get to the questions for today, which are, a number of them are, are, are excellent, uh, let me just quickly um, mention uh, our Spring Theology Conference that will come up in a roughly two weeks for those who are listening to the recorded edition of this podcast. Those who are listening to the live, uh, it's uh, it's about eh, two months, month and a half, month and a half wait. I'm no, I'm no good with math. But it's March 8th through the 10th, and so if you have a calendar, you can uh, obviously figure out when that is. So that is when our Spring the- Theology Conference will occur. So before we get to the questions uh, for today, let me um, have Dr. Piper pray for us, and then we will uh, jump right in. Almighty God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless and praise you because to you alone belongs power, honor, glory, and dominion. We thank you, Lord, for the age in which we live and the technology that we have to be able to uh, spread your word and to instruct the people in your church. So we pray that you'll bless this program, the use of the technology, and give us also by your Spirit uh, insight into your Word and uh, humility in answering the questions. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, our first question today, um, I'm a little befuddled, so bear with me here. Okay, here it comes. Uh, doing uh, n- numerous things at once as usual. Uh, <laughs> our first question of the day is uh, comes in um, from uh, Michael, uh, writing in from Washington State, and it's a question re- regarding covenant children. He asks, please explain how to retain the truth we all must be born again and also retain the birthright status of a covenant of covenant children. We call our children Christians by birth and see them as possessions of the Lord. How is this not in conflict with our Lord stating the first birth isn't enough? We must be born again. Uh, what should we tell our kids about their status as a, as a follow-up, keeping both truths in mind? Thank you, Mikhail. And are you just a frustrated Floridian because you call yourself the Florida Browns? So I don't know why you're in Seattle. But anyway, are you sleepless in Maybe Seattle? Maybe he enjoys rain. Yeah. Was he sleepless in Seattle? Anyway. <laughs> It's an excellent question. It's You're dating yourself. It's something that I have, in fact, wrestled with through the years. I actually have a piece on Romans uh, 9 where I take what Paul says about the old covenant people who have rejected Christ and show yet the privileges that belong to them. I think you've laid out the tension well. We must be born again uh, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's not a physical birth, even to a Christian family. But there is a birthright status that belongs to the covenant children. 
We understand then that God has placed our children in the covenant, and baptism is basically a sign of being in, for them, of being in the covenant, members of the church, under uh, the covenant headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are uh, many privileges that accrue to them because of that, even a a covenantal adoption, as Paul says there, the promises are theirs. God has said, I am your God, and I'm a God to you and to uh, your children. So they are, as the Westminster Directory, our form of government says, that they are Christians by a federal relationship. And so we tell our children that they are in covenant with God, but then they must make covenant with God. And that's the thing that's often missing in the discussions. The uh, Puritans and, and Matthew, Henry, and others, when they came to an age of making their public profession of faith, they actually wrote out a covenant. And so the children must respond to God's covenant grace by a profession of faith, which is by responding in a covenant, taking God formally as their God. Now, uh, many of them, all of them really from infancy, will profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those professions we take as credible professions as long as there's some uh, submissiveness in them to their parents and some love for the Lord and um, his word for prayer. Uh, And God, uh, but I'm wondering a bit. Yes, the children must be born again. That can happen in infancy. It can happen in the womb. It can happen in adolescence. It can happen later in their lives. But whenever they begin to profess that faith in Christ, it is as credible as an adult who enters the church and says, I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. If that adult's life is balanced by uh, a growth in grace, a wrestling with sin, a love for God and his people, it's credible. If he begins to manifest behavior that's Uh, contrary to that profession, then through the process of church discipline, if he doesn't repent, he's eventually put out of the church. So at that point, all who are in the church are in the church on the basis of covenant transactions, either a public profession of faith or being born into a Christian home. They all must be born again. So just as there are adults in the church who have not been born again, and that's a difference in paedo-baptist and credo-baptist, we don't say that we can know the heart. We don't baptize an adult because we think he's regenerate. We baptize him on the basis of this credible profession of faith. So with our children, we're basically saying that God has placed them in covenant. He has said that he is a God to them. And he says they must take him then as their God. Now to do that, they must be born again. And so as deal with our children... We tell them that God loves them. He's placed them in covenant. We teach them to pray as a right that they have by being in the covenant. But we also teach them that they must respond to God in repentance and faith, and they must be born again in order to do that. We don't tell them they're not born again. And so it could be a matter of of just simply terminology, nomenclature. I do not talk about evangelizing covenant children. I talk about setting Christ before them as their only hope, and they must be resting in Christ alone for salvation. They must be born again to do that. But I'm not going to treat them uh, as if they are pagans, nor am I going to treat them assuming they're regenerate. I treat them according to their profession of faith. I keep Christ before them as their only hope, 
and remind them of the sovereignty of God's grace. So I hope that helps. Uh, the main thing to realize, and, and Burkhoff's got a good section on this, that uh, the broader covenant administration is a legal external transaction. Uh, it's with all those who are in the covenant. And then there is the, the living internal part of the covenant, and that's those who have been born again who then have all the full covenant inheritance. But we don't know about our children. We don't treat them as if they haven't, but we don't assume that they have. We keep Christ before them and the need that they must be resting in Christ alone. And Dr. Piper, just a follow-up on this. One of the things that I've heard um, some Christians say, and I think this was part of my dispensational heritage, that we can't tell our we can't sing that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, to we can. have our children <clears throat> sing that. Because of what Paul says in Romans 9, um, He's talking about Old Covenant people who at this point have apostatized. And he says they're Israelites, which means they're members of the church, to whom belongs adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Whose are the fathers from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who's overall God bless forever. So if they have this adoption, I have to keep my rhythm. If they have this adoption, then they may address God as Father. So we teach them to pray the Lord's Prayer. We teach them to sing, Jesus loves me, because he has said he does love them. Excellent. Well, thank you for writing in. It's a great question, and it's one we need to continue to think about. I I just came out of a class with Dr. Ryan McGraw, who's been a guest on the program, obviously, many times in the past. And he just went through this whole thing with us, and it's just really glorious to think about it. Uh, Jerry writes in uh, from the great state of South Carolina, and he asks a question. And what we're going to do with this question is we're actually going to connect this question to another issue that wasn't necessarily a question. That's the second one. He actually has three questions. The first one is, yeah. Yeah, there's three questions here, but we're going to connect one of these to a controversy that's kind of showed up uh, on social media mostly. But here it is. First question. What can a local congregation do in order to further protect their young women from being vulnerable to the possible conscriptions of women into combat positions in the military? Very little. This is why we need, as Presbyterians, our denominations to take very strong stands against women in combat and against women then being uh, drafted into, into combat. Local congregation um, doesn't have the same kind of, of standing or authority. Uh, what's happened thus far in legal cases is when a denomination has particular stands— Stances that carries a lot more weight uh, with uh, the court system than a local congregation. Now, court sessions could adopt such a resolution, and if the denomination does or doesn't, I think it would be useful for a session to adopt a resolution against uh, women in combat or women being uh, eligible for for draft. I, I don't think that violates the spirituality of the church. I, it, we have had the discussion. It's it's difficult. Some men uh, are unwilling to go to the degree of saying that the Bible forbids women in combat. And that's very important because if, if we don't have at least a good necessary consequence that the Bible does forbid women in combat, then we really need to leave it to the individual. But the problem is if it goes to a draft, it's no longer a matter of individual conscience at that point. It becomes a matter of... Uh, coercion. 
Now, again, uh, there is a place in our society for uh, conscientious objectors. That is part, at least historically, has been part of the draft law. And I would hope that, uh, so one of the things that we should do is make ourselves knowledgeable in terms of uh, the draft laws and what kind of objections uh, that one can make. Sorry, I checked to make sure I was off mute. Just a quick follow-up on this one, too. Um, I'm interested personally, but I'm sure the listeners are probably thinking this. What is your position on this and why? I, um, my position is I think there's sufficient good and necessary consequence that women should not serve in combat. And that is on the basis of some of the biblical uh, figures where God speaks of men uh, as if they were women in a way of insulting them. Uh, the m- man has the role of protecting uh, home, hearth, wife, children. So these various things that we see in Scripture, uh, even Deborah, who served as a judge, did not participate in combat. And so in terms of, of legal force in military, that's not something that's been a part of Western tradition. Now, I understand there's a whole whatever, a brigade or platoon or whatever of uh, Kurdistan women fighters. Right. But that, in Eastern cultures, that is very different. That's not, you know, I think in, I think in Israel, women, they're not drafted as the men are. I don't think they, I don't, I don't know whether they have to serve or not, but women can serve, I think, in the Israeli armed forces. But in the West, it's never been part of our tradition. And I think it shows you exactly the decline of our tradition as we are seeing now uh, all of the um, traditional standards between men and women uh, eradicated. And so now with the military adopting a women in combat policy, it's just one more uh, dilution I think, of a properly balanced biblical culture. Very good. Now, just thinking about the the next two questions, um, just review the third one for me and see if we really need to deal with that. But let me read the second question yeah, I was as you're make a, doing an that. ad on the third one. So. Okay. The second question, uh, Jerry writes in again, um, he asks, as a father and head of household, besides protecting our family from any threats of danger, when there is a terrorist attack on our soil, even city, how should we respond? Now, this this question connects with the question of gun control or gun use, and whether we should uh, whether we have a biblical responsibility to defend ourselves by use of those kinds of weapons and and so forth. So, we're going to deal with that this specific question as well as the article that was written by um, a leading evangelical uh, in American uh, Christianity uh, who argued uh, that. Christians, in a sense, it should not use weapons to defend their families if attacked or somehow invaded. Did I lose you? No, I'm trying to find the piece of paper that has that uh, summary of the... Uh, of the article? Of the article that we had. You, you put that into the I just sent queue. you. I sent you the link to it. Well, I thought you put it in the queue as well. Anyway, uh, you know, Jerry... It's, again, a thoughtful question. I think that heads of household need to 
make provisions for their families in terms of, again, I'm not a survivalist, so I'm not advocating going out and buying a year's worth of groceries, but my wife and I keep certain supplies uh, in, in much uh, a greater amount, uh, things that are necessities. The And so I think it's good to be prepared in those types of ways. I think that um, uh, if a man, if a militia were organized, I would think that a Christian man would want to participate uh, in a militia. Um, and I think that uh, every family should be armed uh, and prepared to uh, defend itself then with... Um, with weapons. The piece that uh, came up in our last discussion last month has to do with the article that was written in response to a statement that was made at Liberty University about encouraging there the students to take concealed weapon classes and for the students to carry weapons on campus. Now, part of the statement, at least as it was quoted in the person who was opposing that was, probably not the best, most discreet, humble language in terms of what they would do to somebody that tried to harm them. And I think that is unfortunate. But at Greenville Seminary, this will get us labeled for sure, we do encourage people to have concealed weapons permit. Now we have a procedure they go through. Uh, they must uh, show me the license. They must fill out a paper understanding uh, the rules. But we think that... Uh, uh, that is a proper um, procedure when you look to see that it's not just terrorists, but wackos of various sorts, A, are going to go to, to gun-free zones because they know that they're not going to be opposed. B, increasingly terrorists and Muslims are going to come against those who oppose them and against churches and Christian institutions, particularly if the institution has taken stands in a certain manner. Now, I think that the Bible in the Sixth Commandment uh, requires us to defend ourselves. The Shorter Catechism, the Sixth Commandment, which is, Thou shalt not kill, uh, requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others all lawful endeavors. And then the Sixth Commandment forbids taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. And in the larger catechism, when it gets into sins forbidden, uh, taking away the life of ourselves or others except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful necessary means of the preservation of life. Now, I think those are apt summaries of what the Bible teaches with respect to personal self-defense. Moreover, our Constitution guarantees that right uh, to the citizens of our country. The states that have uh, carry laws have lower violent crime rates than the states that don't. Recently, at least in my area, there's been a number of home invasions thwarted because the people in the household uh, were armed. 
I do not want my wife leaving the house without her gun in her purse, particularly today going to malls and places like that, which are going to be subject to terror attacks. Now, the article will say that we're not trusting the providence of God and that we've got a, uh, uh, you know, a wrong kind of attitude that Christ says we need to be, be willing to be martyred. Um, and there's a balance there. Willingness to be martyred when we cannot defend ourselves and we may not deny the gospel is one thing. But even then, a person is not required to remain in harm's way. Uh, I know people who have fled persecution and being put to death um, because they could, they, could, they could leave and take this lawful means to preserve their lives and to preserve the lives of their family. So the article argues basically in the, on the basis of really a lot of uh, Quakerish and, and uh, pacifist, although the person is not a pacifist, but ideas that we to turn the other cheek. Well, Christ there is talking not about danger, but insult. There's a big danger, a big difference between danger and insult. Yes, we're to take insult. We are to bear reproach. We are to love our enemy and to uh, pray uh, for our enemy. But we do have a responsibility. And the writer himself says he doesn't know what he would do if someone came in and he needed to protect his wife from being raped. Uh, well, I don't find that to be a godly, uh, a godly remark. I believe that uh, I am required to do everything I can do to protect my wife. And uh, if I have to use a weapon to do so, uh, I will do so. I find it interesting. You know, the Bible has a much different approach to what we think of as violence and, and death and defense than we do. I think we're way too squeamish. Now, we shouldn't have this militant attitude about, you know, come on and make my day. But we look at these stories like jail, you know, driving the tent peg through the guy's head. Um, there's lots of these kind of things in the Bible. And the Bible does not take this uh, idea that, uh, you know, violence is always wrong and, uh, you know, self-defense is wrong. So I think that uh, we should not have an attitude that we're looking to blow someone away. Or we're boasting, you come in here and make my day or whatever. We need to be, in fact, one of the things in our policy is students may not talk about it. So a student might be armed, but his classmates ought not to know he's armed. He's not to be showing his weapon. Um, so it's a quiet defense. And so I think the attitude expressed in the, uh, at least supposedly said, is unfortunate. But that surely it does not give right then on the other hand to say, well, we're to turn the other cheek and we're to expect to be put to death and this uh, and that. Well, Christ is dealing with specific situations. Uh, and, you know, if, if the police come to arrest someone and to put them in prison, they're going to be um, easily martyred. That's very different from a terrorist or, in case, a home invasion person uh, coming. And we have to do what we're going to do at that point, you know, is uh, if we're in a country where the police are legally coming to take us away, then I don't think we have the right to for armed resistance. But we live in a country where people don't have the right to come and take us away without uh, writ of law and such as that, and truly outlaws and terrorists. 
Just think of the lives that would have been saved if there had been armed people in these various places. Uh, and you know, I even agree with uh, one of the presidential candidates who said, well, you know, if you just if one person, you might get killed, but if one person ran toward the killer uh, and gave others time to jump on him, that means one or two get killed and not 20. Right. So, well, I'll stop there. I'm sure I've gotten enough trouble as it is. Well, it, it also highlights in answer to this question uh, it, or, or, or in dealing with this question, this issue of self-defense and, and, and whatnot, it highlights um, the radical difference between uh, an, an evangelical Christian who is not bound by confessional standards, whereas those of us in the Presbyterian Reformed world, um, especially officers of the church, but those who hold dear the Westminster Standards or other Reformed confessions, have a framework by which they uh, base these things on. And, and so you ran right to the larger catechism, as is your instinct, because that's what you've been raised to believe in and have given vows to uphold. And there, you know, even the Westminster divines, in a more, I mean, probably more hostile society, maybe, uh, a more difficult society in some ways, uh, gave room for a person to defend themselves, because that's keeping with the terms of the Sixth Commandment. And so... Yeah, it is an unfortunate article. I, I was perusing it as Dr. Piper was talking, looking for more things to say, but I think he's covered it. Um, I don't know about you, brother, but if someone broke in my house um, and went after my wife, it wouldn't be a no-brainer uh, decision. So um, anyway, so I hope that clarifies this, at least um, from Dr. Piper's opinion on this subject, and um, I don't think he's alone based on the social media responses that I've seen uh, to it as well. Uh, moving on, um, did you want to go ahead and Let me and just deal do with this. that third? So the question had to do with uh, our long-range plans at the seminary to produce videos, uh, things available on iTunes University, uh, Apple TV, other things like that. Uh, we are moving in the direction of, of trying to get more things uh, available on these uh, various uh, – Media links and uh, actually, Mr. Hill and I and Mr. Dindecker uh, in our media department uh, are going to be talking about this. And I actually have a couple of courses that I'd like to prepare special lectures for with a lot of visuals and stuff uh, and, and do these things. So we are trying to move that direction. Yeah, we're always trying to move forward. So uh, stay tuned, as it were, and um, we're getting there. Um, We've done some things even today to help move that along. I mean, it's a small thing, but uh, anyway. All right, moving on. Uh, Jerry, again, thank you for the questions and uh, the, um, and the uh, comments regarding um, iTunes and, and so forth. Moving on uh, to the next question. Uh, this is a rather lengthy question, and I don't really know what the nature of it is because I didn't read it. Um, you want me to read it? You've you got an awful cold. Yeah, well... And I know what its nature Go is. Go ahead. Why don't you do it, and uh, I'll mute myself. Okay. This is from uh, Josh. And Josh uh, is a member of a church that uh, has both uh, credo-baptist and pedo-baptist in it, but has held to uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, except with respect to church government. In the past five months, Josh has learned that his pastor has changed his views and now holds to credo, that believer's baptism, and not pedo-infant uh, baptism. Now, this has caused Josh to do a lot more studying, 
And as he has studied, he's come even more firmly to the position of paedo-baptism. So when he joined the church, that was its position, although it allowed credo-baptist in membership. Uh, it appears that next month, the church is going to have a, a congregational meeting in their congregation and their church government, and he's afraid that they're going to adopt the 1689 London Baptist uh, Confession. This puts him at a quandary. He has five children, one of whom is under a year and unbaptized. The pastor refuses to baptize her. Now, and that right there, I think the pastor is violating his obligations. Uh, he was under the Westminster Confession, and he has an obligation, regardless of what his views have done, to baptize uh, this little girl. So, Josh, I would appeal to him on that basis that there, there are vows involved here. There are covenant obligations, and he needs to honor his covenant obligations. Now, the church is 17 minutes from uh, Josh's home. The closest Reformed Presbyterian church is 45 minutes away. So what Josh wants to know is how does he handle this situation he would like to be in a Presbyterian church because of convictions, but that's a long ways to go, particularly when you have uh, a young family. And second, you do want, when all possible, to be in a church that's in your general community because of the uh, need to witness and to try to bring others to church with you. He said if there were a Presbyterian church in the vicinity of the current church that they would uh, gladly go there. Now, part of the... the of, of the complexity of the problem is that Josh is also a deacon in this church, but his term comes up for renewal in February. He's not answered whether or not he will serve again, but it would seem to me, Josh, if the church adopts the London Confession 1689, you could not in good conscience serve. If they don't adopt that, then I think you need to press the church provides that the pastor can't do it. They need to bring in a Presbyterian who will baptize your daughter for you, then you could stay in good conscience. Now, here's the thing that when I was in the pastorate that we did for some people, with the session's concurrence and the officers of the local church where the other family was a member, and that is we had a, a couple of families over the years that lived in areas where there were no Presbyterian churches. They were members uh, in Baptist churches. Uh, they had a child and we, in correspondence with the officers of the Baptist church, offered to baptize the child as long as the officers of the local church where the family was a member concurred in our doing that. Now, that's highly extraordinary, and it's not ordinary, but Calvin points out that sometimes in extraordinary times we have to take extraordinary actions. I think a better action for you to be would be to, uh, as long as it's a good Reformed church, you know, you know, don't just assume because it's got the name Presbyterian in it. Uh, check it out. But if it is a, a good Reformed church, what I would uh, recommend is joining that church with the understanding that you would go up there uh, once or twice a month, and then you all would worship in your local church uh, the other Sundays. It's probably a better way. I, I'm on the session of a work that we have in Italy We've got a family I've known for years that live in Milan, four hours away. 
they've joined the church. We do pastoral visits in person and also over Skype. Uh, and uh, they get up probably once every three months. And then they have Christian fellowship and worship in Milan. So I think that's the direction that I would go. If the church doesn't adopt the London Baptist, then you need to go ahead and try to have your rights protected. If the pastor won't honor his vows, then at least get the officers to bring in a Presbyterian uh, to baptize your daughter. And um, if they do adopt the London Baptist, then move your membership to a Presbyterian church that is a good, strong, confessional church. Go there, whatever you can do, once a month, once every two months. Uh, now, the other thing that the church could do, and we've done this as well, it's 45 minutes. Um, we had people in Houston when I pastored, and uh, we had about four or five families on a rotation. Family would come down in the morning for worship and Sunday school. They would spend the afternoon with one of the rotating families and then attend uh, evening worship and then go home at night. So that's another option as well. So God bless you. Uh, appreciate your conscience in this and pray and, and seek from God how you can uh, uh, press forward with respect to your convictions. Yeah, excellent question. And um, and, I, and I think Dr. Piper handled it. Um, I appreciate the way it was handled pastorally. Um, oftentimes, I think Dr. Piper, we've said on this program that some issues, they're not they're theological, of course, but they're also pastoral, and there's that fine line, that balance that well, has to be. theology is pastoral. Absolutely. Okay, now, the next question that we have coming up, um, really more it's of a really comment. not of a question. Do you want to respond to this in yeah, so general? Yes, it's very useful. Okay. Uh, I said last month that moderate Islams were not true Muslims, that the Quran was a violent book it advocated the murdering of, of infidels and everything else and uh, Rich wrote from Virginia and he has studied uh, Islam to some degree that um, he thinks that the idea of saying there's true Islam and that modern Islam is no Islam at all is not a wise uh, distinction he says what that does is it gives to the Quran a perspicuity which is completely lacking. He says the Quran is 57% the size of the New Testament and it's difficult to determine or ground many key doctrines. It's not even clear what the relationship of the New Testament scriptures are in the mind of the author of the Quran. Sunni Islam, which represents about 90% of all Muslims, combines the Quran with various Hadith collections and together form what might be properly understood as Islam for many practicing Muslims. There's no such thing as fair rare for any Muslim to be a Quran-only Muslim. So that was a useful um, insight uh, from Rich. And then with the Hadith collections, there are a wide variety of things written about what Muhammad said or did. There are even grades given by Muslims as to how strong or weak those reports are. And that's why we have all these different sects of Islam that focus on certain aspects of the Hadith and emphasize certain things while other Muslims focus on other aspects. The Hadith themselves are contradictory, and this explains why Muslims are at each other's throats to a large degree. So there's more there. I, I find it to be uh, a very good moderating uh, influence for me 
he concludes, I simply want to make sure we don't say more than the truth will support when we talk about Islam. Don't give Islam the credit for being perspicuous, either in the Quran or the Hadith. To even say, this is true Islam, gives it too much credit. So, Rich, I appreciate that, and I'm going to uh, moderate my uh, approach then uh, to that, and thank you very much for willingness to uh, uh, communicate these things to us. Very good, Richard, and thank you for writing in uh, to the program and for listening uh, as well. Uh, Troy writes in, this was, um, this was written uh, as a comment on our website, confessingourhope.com. He writes in, uh, how should a Reformed Christian understand the phrase from the Nicene Creed, quote, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, unquote? Thank you very much, Troy. You know, that's basically a biblical uh, language uh, from Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Or what does the fellow say to Paul? You know, rise up, be baptized for the washing away of sin. Again, uh, my default position is the confession of faith, which I think is a very good summary of what the Bible teaches. And in chapter 27 on the sacraments, there is a paragraph 2, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Now, that is a very useful insight. We see it in circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant, but circumcision is also called the covenant. Let me give you a couple of, of 21st century uh, examples. Uh, Xerox invented the first copying machine. Before that, we used mimeograph machines. I ruined about a suit a year as a pastor doing bulletins on a mimeograph machine. <laughs> so Xerox um, got the technology. And for the longest time then, even when other people built machines, we would turn that into a verb. Would you please Xerox that for me? We finally say copy. But for a long time, we simply said, would you Xerox? So what we took was uh, the sign, which is the trade name, and turned it into the reality. Google. Google, okay. Can we Another do that one? for web searches? We call it, did you Google that, even right. though you may not be using Google? Well, that's true. Or Coke. Uh, which what? Was kind of the first popular oh, soft drink. Yeah, Coca-Cola. <laughs> I was just like, what? <laughs> so Southerners, for the longest time, referred to all soft drinks as Cokes. Whereas Northerners would talk about pop, our soft drinks. Which is the correct one, by the way. Pop, yeah, soft drinks. It's pop. Yeah, but we used the original and the greatest as the, as the, uh, the sign to describe all. Right. Anyway, that's the, uh, the idea that goes on here then. So baptism is remission of sins is that because baptism uh, signifies the remission of sins by the washing of water, union with Christ, and necessity of regeneration – uh, the sign uh, can be put for the reality. And so that's why the Scripture uses that language and why the Nicene Creed uses that language. Very good. Thank you for writing in. And again, thank you for listening. William writes in from the great state of Texas, and um, he asks a question related to Genesis 15. Uh, he writes, I've recently come across uh, Dr. Joel Beakey's exposition of God's covenant with Abram in Genesis 15. It seems to me that this view which includes Christ represented by the burning lamp, is a more full and rich interpretation than the typical suzerain treaty view. 
Are there other major differences between these two views, and what is your interpretation of Genesis 15? Okay, uh, William, thank you for the question. Um, I think that culturally, the idea of animals being cut in half and people passing through was probably a broader covenant transacting form than simply in the Bible. Uh, it's basically passing through and saying, you know, let this happen to me if I violate the covenant. So we see this used in covenants between men, um, and we see it even as late as uh, King Zedekiah doing this to release the uh, Hebrew indentured servants, and we see it with God and men. Now, whether or not that was used in the suzerainty treaties, I think, is irrelevant because we interpret Scripture from Scripture. We find this for both human treaties, men with men, and we find it men with God. If they had it, uh, it could be that it was a parallel. It could be they copied what was God had first initiated in covenant making, uh, maybe even back in the garden. We don't know. He killed the animals uh, to clothe Adam and Eve, so uh, we don't know. So I agree with Dr. Beakey, though, that the content of the covenant is very different because it, we have a theophany. This uh, torch that comes down and passes through is a, a symbolic manifestation of God. Uh, verse 17, it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, What's remarkable about this is that God is saying, if I don't keep the covenant, let me be like these animals. And, of course, that's exactly what it would take, isn't it? It would take God incarnate, bearing the covenant curse for God to keep the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So I would agree with what you're saying here that Dr. Beakey wrote that Christ is represented and Christ did fulfill um, that covenant curse by Galatians 3 becoming a curse uh, for us. As to your personal questions, uh, come on. We'll be glad to let you come as a prospective student. Yeah, we didn't read that on the air, um, and so he knows what we mean, and he's listening live, as a matter of fact, so um, that's why I said that. I do want to follow up really quickly. So did you cover then this... this, this uh, I don't want to say, and it's not well. This, this, this notion, this idea that Christ is represented by that burning lamp that passes between. Yes, he is. I did say that. It's okay. a theophany. All right. As as some listeners know and can tell by listening to me, I'm a little under the weather, so I'm not completely engaged with what Doctor Pipe is saying this That's this okay. afternoon. But um, it's it's a great question, and it's an important one because it sets the framework for the covenant as it goes forward, and it kind of leads into what you, I think you dealt with this in man and sinner, was it Christ and salvation? I can't remember at this point. Christ and salvation. Christ and salvation. So um, so there you go. Um, William, when you come as a student, you get to enjoy uh, Dr. Piper's class, and he deals extensively actually with this particular issue. Now, are there so, other major differences between these two views? Well, yes, there are. Uh, the suzerain treaty view lets culture interpret the Bible. And that becomes a biblical framework for mm, all mm-hmm. of republicationism. Right. And uh, it just, I think, is putting the cart before the horse. I think it's fine to illustrate the Bible from parallels in the culture. 
But our hermeneutical principle is laid out again in the Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 1. The Bible is the interpreter of the Bible. Yep. So the whole approach to Scripture uh, is really uh, measured uh, by, uh, by these types of things. So good question, and, and thank you for writing in. Um, he's a longtime listener, I know, and um, so I appreciate uh, you doing that. Um, Doug writes in from Greer, <laughs> and, and around here they don't say it that way. Greer. Yeah, it, Greer. Okay, it, it, the northerner says Greer because that's how it's spelled. Greer is, is, is right next to uh, the seminary here. So it's, Yeah, it's, it's right, right next down to the Greenville. street. But uh, he writes in, um, hello, Dr. Piper and Bill. Uh, I've been in the pastoral ministry for 15 years. I have been frequently in discussions with other pastors and laymen about Calvinism and Arminianism, as well as the other belief systems that branch out from these. I've talked with men and women from both camps who are very adamant that the other systems are wrong, unbiblical, and not the true gospel. My question centers around Galatians 1, 6-9. Do these differing systems proclaim a different gospel, or do they preach the same gospel that Paul taught but differ on the particulars of God's workings and man's response? Great question. It really is. And for our listeners, Galatians 1, 6 through 9 is Paul's warning. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, of course, what is at view for Paul in Galatians is the role of Christ alone as the means of our acceptance with God and no addition of works. And that is the great litmus test uh, as we're having these discussions between what you would say Calvinists or Arminians or Reformed and Evangelicals is what is the basis of your hope. If anyone says, I'm resting in Christ alone for my acceptance with God, then they're holding to uh, the essence of the true gospel. And because we're fallible and, fi and finite, uh, we are inconsistent. And so uh, Arminians fail to realize, many of them, that once they uh, put works into the role of faith or free will, that they are watering down the system. But as long as they assert that they are resting in Christ alone, then I accept them as brother or sister in Christ. But now, J.I. Packer, in his wonderful foreword to John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ, points out that although there are Christians in these various camps, that what one holds with respect to these basic Reformation doctrines is going to affect one's Christian life. Mm -hmm. So sanctification, prayer, providence, uh, providence comfort, all these things then um, are going to affect how we live the Christian life. On both ends, there's hyper-Calvinism that I think and it gets close to denying the gospel when it doesn't let Christ alone be the basis of our confidence. And there's a hyper-Arminianism that puts free will into a position much like Roman Catholics do. And so are actually say such things as faith, um, because I believe in Christ, God accepts my works and accepts me. 
Now, that's wrong. And so that's some of these branches, these camps that come out. So the, the litmus test is always going to be uh, a belief in the Trinity, a belief that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who is the uh, incarnate Son of God. N- nothing in my hands I bring, as Henrider says, simply to your cross I cling. Uh, anybody that says that, I treat as a Christian brother or sister. And in fact, I should really be delighted to make their acquaintance. And I am. That uh, when we have that common ground, that Christ alone is our hope, uh, then we're with a brother or a sister. Yeah, very good question. And uh, the debate rages on on this subject in, in any way. Okay. Our last qu- it is our last question. It's amazing. I either have not done a good enough job of slowing you down, or you've been very thorough in answering your questions today. I thought I'd been way too wordy. Well, I think we're on, both very tired. Any, but uh, any come in on Twitter? No, I haven't seen any. Um, I did want to pass this on to you, Dr. Pippet, by way of encouragement, that one of the listeners uh, said that your sermon, The Covenant and Our Children, which can be uh, can be had on Sermon Audio. Okay. The Covenant Romans and nine, Our Children. Four and following. Was pivotal, pivotal in his, his, well, I don't know if it's a his or her. Um, well, it's a his. His understanding of coming to Pado-Baptist, a Pado-Baptist position, so... Well, pass, we'll praise the Lord. On. So, uh, yeah, whoever asked that question, uh, Mikhail. Um, well, he asked the question, but this is not the same person. I'm saying, but that's the sermon I referred to. Yep. And so it's available on Sermon Audio, it Romans is. 9, 4 through 6, something yep. the, like that. The title of it is The Covenant in Our Children. If you go to Sermon Audio, just search for that. You'll It should come right up. Okay, so our this last... anonymous. Yes, our last question of the day is... Uh, on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the the question is, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the narrative says that the rich man in hell, crying out to Father Abraham to ease his torment, and Father Abraham responds, son, remember, how can you explain it? Now, there's going to have to probably read more of the text. So, well, Anonymous is probably on in the room listening. so Anonymous has been disappointed twice this week. When we first got, we had to cancel the broadcast because uh, Bill fell on the ice. It's funny that a Yankee would fall on the ice. And then... Uh, That's yes- because I'm not used to having ice in the South. <laughs> I'm not prepared. Yesterday, uh, our entire system went down in the middle of my class yesterday afternoon. All right, the parable is found in Luke chapter 16. And if you remember the parable of rich man... Uh, showed no mercy or compassion on Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus was a beggar at his gates. Lazarus uh, died and was carried to angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried. And Hades lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. The key here is it's a parable. That's right. And in understanding how to interpret a parable, we do not take all of the particular uh, facts and details in a parable. What Christ is really getting at here above all else, I think, is at the end. Father, send to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
But he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now that is what this is all about. Someone did rise from the dead, they would not believe him because they would not believe the scriptures. But in the parable, Christ does show us a number of important truths. The reality of hell, that it's a place of torment, spiritual and physical. Now I say it's a parable because the rich man didn't have a body. At this point, he was only a soul. And so the very kind of language that he is being tormented in this flame and he wants to dip the tip of the finger and put it on his tongue. He didn't have a tongue. And so we, we understand from the details that it's describing that hell is going to be a place of unimaginable torment, body and soul, that there's a chasm that those in hell can never get out and those in heaven are not going to go down to uh, try to do a rescue action. And in fact, even if someone came back from the dead and testified to the terrors of hell, not one person would be converted. We are converted through the gospel when it's made effective by the Holy Spirit through regeneration. So I think anonymous, that is the, uh, the way to understand that passage of Scripture. If you want to follow up with that, either contact me privately or follow up with a, a question. And, and it's practical it's, <laughs> in, in a sense. You know, we've all heard or know of people who have made the, the comments that, well, if God would just come down in my, li- in my living room and, and speak to me, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You won't believe the scriptures. You won't believe that. You won't, and that's just what you—that's what you say. And you can point where you go right to this parable, and you can use it. Look, Jesus Himself, the Word, said that you don't believe the scriptures. Someone rises from the dead. You're not going to believe them either. And so, herein lies the uh, the issue of, of that parable. So, thank you for the question, and that takes us to really the end. We don't have any more questions, which uh, is a great place to to appeal to the listeners. Those either listening live or uh, by recording, uh, you can always write us uh, at um, at confessing our hope at gpts.edu. The website has a nice little form that you could fill out. It's very simple. Put, punch in your question, hit submit, and it will come to us. And Doctor Piper will get it within a couple hours of me sending it to him. Um, and if you do, and we use your question on the air, which I don't, I don't think we've, ne- I don't think there's any questions we've never used yet. I'm it's, hard sure that, send, it's hard to send a book to anonymous, but <laughs> no, it's not true. We don't send I'm books anymore. We I use mean banner. certificate. I know. Yeah. So what we do now uh, to make things a little easier is, um, if we use your question, we will send you a discount coupon worth ten dollars uh, to the Banner of Truth store, um, uh, Banner of Truth in Greenville Seminary. We are good friends, and um, so we are happy to partner with them in this um, in this with this program. So. Um, Send your questions, and, uh, and we'll deal with them. our next Faith and Practice is going to be on Monday, February the 29th. So you've got actually a month from today. Uh, well, that's not a Monday, but today's the 28th of January. So Monday, Tuesday. The, February the 29th. Um, it's a Monday. Yeah. I'm saying it's a month from today. Yep. Not oh, okay. literally, but almost. Today's the 28th of January. So uh, get your questions in. That's one week before our conference. We also hope to see a lot of you here at the conference. It's going to be a really useful conference. And remember, if you can't make it, that on the night of the 8th and 9th, Ian Hamilton's preaching on the 8th, I'm preaching on the 9th, that there will be a, uh, a live simulcast 
uh, through sermon audio. And so you can at least join us in that way. And then, of course, really in a matter of weeks, uh, we will be making the other lectures um, available. But there's nothing like being here. The fellowship, Absolutely. the displays. It's worth coming just for the uh, the book room that's <laughs> run by uh, Heritage Publications because of the deep discounts and the broad selection of Reformed literature. So there's lots of reasons to come. Plus, you can see Bill Hill in the flesh. So they <laughs> all come. It's 25 people just canceled um, their coming. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's a fantastic time. And the book room, as Dr. Piper said, is, is it's not just a little tor- tiny corner in the room. It's huge. So um, So make plans to be here. Coming up on the program, let me quickly bring you uh, up to speed on that. Before we close, um, it, Rever- the Reverend Daniel Hyde will be on the program. He has written a book uh, from the pen of Pastor Paul. It's a commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, but it's based on his sermons, so it's an expositional commentary um, of uh, of those two letters penned by the Apostle Paul. So he'll be on to talk about that and, and some related subjects uh, uh, on eschatology, of course, and other matters. Uh, following him, March 11th, Dr. Michael Morales, he is the professor of biblical studies here at the seminary. He will be on to talk about his newest book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. Now, we've already recorded that program, and I can tell you it was really good. You want to hear that program. It, it was fantastic. And then Brian Croft will be on the week after uh, week after that to talk about various aspects of pastoral ministry, family life, biblical priorities, and others. So look forward to those coming up on the program. Those listening live, pay no attention to what I just said, but those listening to the recording, this is what is on tap in the next few weeks. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.